Hey everyone, and welcome to Homecoming, a podcast that features the diverse stories, insights, and experiences of Asians, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders. I'm your host, Angel Rena, and thank you so much for tuning back into this episode. I hope all of you guys are doing okay out there and enjoying all of the homecoming episodes so far. I just wanted to remind you that you can access all of the resources that my guests and I mention in our episodes in the homecoming link tree, which I have put both in every episode description, wherever you listen to podcasts and also on our social media platforms. So definitely feel free to check out those if you ever want to revisit various resources. But today, I am very excited to have Richard Leong on the podcast to share his background and his past and current work on social justice, activism, and education. And we're also just going to have a conversation about things like uh, gender divide when it comes to anti-racism work, um, solidarity within the Asian American community, and social media activism. Uh, all issues that are incredibly relevant right now and all issues that I've been thinking about a lot recently. So yeah, and we'll we'll also just see where this uh, conversation goes and what direction it goes. But I'm just overall super excited to learn a lot in this episode. So hi, Richard. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, First, before we begin, how are you doing? How have you been? How have you been holding up during quarantine? Hey, thanks for asking. Uh, I'm doing really, really well, I think. You know, it's touch and go. I feel like ever since quarantine started, depending on when you would ask me that question, on some days I'd be like, everything's terrible. Like, this is just the worst. And then there are other days like today where I'm like, you know what? Like, things are actually going okay. So, and I recognize it's a huge privilege to to have the position to be able to say that. But um, yeah, I I think things are going okay for now. How about you? How are you doing? Um, I'm doing good. Yeah, like I mentioned before to you, I just finished my finals for all of my summer classes. So that's a huge relief. You know, that was 10 weeks of my summer vacation. So it wasn't really a vacation, but now I'm free and I can dedicate this entire month to just working on this podcast. So I'm, yeah, I'm feeling good right now too. <laughs> Yeah, I like how you I like how you're like, yeah, I'm free. So now I can continue working on this podcast. Like it just never (laughs) stops for you, apparently. (laughs) I love working on this podcast, though. It's so fun. And I just get to meet so many cool people. So um, yeah, it it doesn't it's it's not really a job. I feel like it's just a fun. It's something fun. It's like a hobby or an activity. So yeah. But I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. I know we're going to have such a great conversation. Um, So before we get into all of the questions and the topics, um, would you be able to first introduce yourself to all of our listeners, um, just so they have an idea of who you are and what your story is, and you can mention your name, pronouns, um, where you work, any other aspect of your identity that you want to introduce. Um, Yeah, go for it. Yeah, for sure. Um, So my name is Richard Leong. My pronouns are he, him, his. Uh, I'm currently based in Los Angeles, uh, specifically the suburbs, the San Gabriel Valley, east of Los Angeles, where all the amazing Asian food is for folks that that know about it. Um, My background is in education. Uh, When I graduated college, I joined Teach for America and became a fifth grade teacher uh, in uh, the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Uh, and then after that, I sort of hopped around a few roles, um, mostly around leadership development. And so right now what I'm doing is a couple things. Um, I am on the job hunt. Um, so like many 
others during this economy. I'm looking for a job, but I'm also uh, an independent consultant on diversity, equity, inclusion, and a leadership development coach. Uh, so I'm working with a couple of folks to develop their leadership skills, um, doing lots of workshops and trainings for organizations of all types and sizes around diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, and also staying pretty busy with my work as a board member on Act to Change, which is a, an, a national nonprofit dedicated to uh, ending bullying, um, especially within the APIA community. Thank you so much, Richard. Yeah, we'll definitely touch on a lot of those things that you just mentioned um, in your short introduction. But yeah, like I mentioned, I'm super excited to um, have our conversation today. And I know that we've got a ton of different topics and questions on the docket, but I wanted to start off this episode um, with just asking you questions about yourself and your own experiences growing up as an Asian American and also your current work in social justice, civic engagement and education, because I know that you're involved with a lot of cool organizations and doing a ton of cool stuff right now. Um, and you know, a big part of this podcast is just allowing the listeners to get to know the guests better and get to know their interests and what they stand for. So let's start off with that. Um, first, would you be able to give me a sense of what it was like to grow up as and be an Asian American and specifically a Chinese Taiwanese American um, in your hometown and also in your schools growing up and also when you went off to college? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I grew up in Irvine, which is in Orange County in Southern California, about maybe an hour or so south of where I live now. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, let me start off with a little bit before then, actually. So I, I was born in Southern California, but as early as I can remember, actually, I was living in Beijing. Um, moved to Beijing pretty shortly after I was born here. My parents were, were immigrants who had uh, met here in America, but had uh, moved to Beijing for work as American expats. Um, and so my earliest years are, are actually of, of uh, going to international school in Beijing. Uh, but my last year, second grade, I was in a Chinese public school. Um, and I think about that year a lot because it was, it was just really awkward, like the whole year. Like I went from like speaking English at home and at school, and then I was in Chinese public school and I was just like, ah, like I don't, I don't understand what's going on here, even though I look like everyone here. And then, you know, I remember my second semester of Chinese public school, we had like English as like a class. And then I was like, great, ace that. Like I was like, thank God I can, I can finally like, I could finally engage. But then our teacher had like learned, I guess I had learned English like in England or something. And so spoke with an accent, but also like used different words. And so I remember getting into this whole argument over like airplane versus aeroplane was like a whole thing. Anyway, yeah, so we finished second grade and then moved um, back to Irvine uh, in, uh, uh, for me to start third grade. And then I went through all of K through 12th or well, third through 12th grade there, graduated. Um, and then went to Columbia University for college. Um, in terms of like growing up Asian American and, and those, uh, those identities, I think, you know, I, I, feel, I find myself very lucky to have grown up around people who look like me, right? There were lots of immigrant families. Um, that Orange County and Irvine at the time was uh, changing really, really quickly. Um, lots and lots of Asian immigrants were moving in. And I think, I, I, I got to double check this one later, but I'm pretty sure that my graduating year of high school was the first year that my high school had a 50% Asian American graduating class. So in some ways, there's a lot of privilege um, in being able to grow up around, around folks that look like me. But I think I also really, really struggled with identity because I was bullied a lot um, from third through 12th grade. Um, and the funny thing now, when I think back on it, I don't, I don't really remember 
any sorts of explicit interpersonal acts of bullying ever done by white kids, which I think a lot of people share. Um, I think a lot of um, second generation American folks like share, share about those experiences. I don't actually have any concrete memories of that. But what I do have memories are of Korean kids bullying me. Right. Um, I was called chink a lot by, by Korean kids, um, specifically a lot of Korean boys. And I, I sometimes wonder if that has something to do with um, if that that led me to have this like really strong passion and connection for Asian American community building. Right. And Asian American identity work, because I think as an Asian American getting bullied on the behalf of being Chinese and Taiwanese by other Asian Americans, I think that that led me to now as an adult really seek um, to build this sort of solidarity that I desperately wanted as a kid and, and didn't have, you know. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, Asian American solidarity is definitely something we're going to get to get into later on in the episode. And I have a really similar experience um, as you just mentioned. So definitely excited to get into that. But um, you, you talked about this a little bit just now, but I'm also wondering how did other specific experiences um, of you being an Asian American and growing up where you did lead you to prioritize uh, and focus on doing work in the fields of social justice, education, leadership development, and anti-racism? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think... um... Now, I've been asked many times, like, how did I get into education, social justice, all this stuff? I think it really comes down to when I was in college, um, I became really passionate about learning about what identity work looked like. I, as I think my sophomore year, junior year, I, I took ethnic studies, and that was um, a really, really big deal in terms of shaping my development and my lens now. Um, and around the same time, I also, like, discovered Angry Asian Man. Like, I just, like, started, like, reading everything. <laughs> um, and I also started reading um, a lot of blog posts. This is back when Tumblr was, like, the number one thing, y'all. Uh, but I was reading, like, tons of Tumblr posts um, written by women in tech, uh, specifically outlining sort of the, the terrible sort of sexist experiences that they had working in the tech industry. And I was just reading all this stuff at the same time. And I think being able to read and understand about Asian American identity and the oppression that, and the bullying that I had faced as a result of that, and then being able to connect that with um, the stories that I was reading about um, women in tech, I think collectively that really forged in me this really strong passion and fire for, for just fighting for folks that, um, that, that get bullied and get overlooked, right? Um, I think we often think about bullying as a very sort of interpersonal act, right? Like we think about the movies where like some kid is like standing in a lunch line and gets shoved out of place or something like that. And those are real experiences. But I also think about bullying at a very systemic level, right? So like, what does it look like to like perpetually um, reinforce through our media narratives that Asian Americans don't exist in this country, right? That we are invisibilized or that we are the perpetual foreigner, right? And that like, we don't actually grow up here. We don't have multiple generations of life here, right? Um, I, I think a lot about the ways that bullying exists, not just in these like very visible ways, but these like largely systemic ways um, that many of us sort of just kind of ignore, you know? <laughs> um, and so ar around the education piece, um, I, I really, um, in college began to realize how lucky I was to have had gone to the public schools that I had gone to. It was expected every year that my high school would send graduates to the Ivy Leagues and to Berkeley and to send a ton of kids to UCLA, you know? And it was only in college where I began to realize that like, what a tremendous privilege that was. And that wasn't true for so many kids around the country, you know? 
Um, I, what I think also accentuated this is that like, I've never been the smartest kid, like in any room that I've been in, you know, um, I was a solid like B student, like in high school. Like, I think a lot of people tell the story about like going to college as like, you went from being a big fish in a small pond to like a large pond. Like that was never true for me. Like I was never the big fish like at all, like ever, right? And so that like insecurity like got even worse when I got to Columbia where I was surrounded by like really smart people and also just like really rich kids. Um, and so the, the piece around education as a vehicle for social justice, right? As a vehicle for this like American dream piece that we seem to believe as, uh, or uh, that, we're, that we hope to believe to be true as especially as immigrant communities. Um, that became like making that true for other people became really, really um, important. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I also, I don't think you mentioned this, but I know that you were also an elementary school teacher, I believe, after you graduated from college. So how do you feel like that job led you to the work that you're doing now as well? Yeah, um, I loved teaching. Um, I really, really loved teaching. Um, I was not very good at it, though. <laughs> um, and it was really, really draining. And it was really hard. I was working in a really low income neighborhood. But um, I think it shaped me in a lot of really, really powerful ways. Number one, um, I think it really taught me the importance of relationships. So any good teacher, the first thing they'll do at the beginning of any year is call every single student and their family just to introduce themselves. Um, that way you start building a relationship. Um, and it's ter it's a terrible feeling when like your your first call with a family is to tell them like something that their student like that their child like didn't do well on or like their child misbehaved right like that's just like a terrible way to start a relationship um and so i, I think a lot about the ways that being a teacher taught me to think about how important relationships are um especially like as i've left the classroom and done other work i think oftentimes like we get this project that's put in front of us we get told we got to do this thing and a lot of people sort of jump into it right away. They're like, okay, I got to do this. I got to send this email. I got to schedule this thing. I got to do whatever. Um, and th those are important things. But what I think about is, um, you know, for anything to be successful, ultimately, it's going to require collaboration and teamwork. Um, so I, I thank teaching for, for really putting that lens front and center for me. I think the other thing that, I, that teaching really also pushed for me was um, a sort of laser-like focus on addressing root causes of systemic injustice. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, my kids were amazing. My students were phenomenal, but they, a lot of them also really struggled in the classroom. Um, and even if I was an amazing teacher, which I was not, but even if I was, I would have had the time to work with them from like 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then after 4 p.m., my kids would go home and they wouldn't do the homework because they were busy taking care of their nieces and nephews. Um, sometimes during class, they would act out, um, they would steal food because they didn't have food at home. They were worried that they'd go home and there'd be no food on the dinner table, so they'd steal food at lunch because that was going to be their dinner. Um, and it was really hard to necessarily uh, to work as closely with parents and guardians as I would have liked to because for all sorts of reasons, many of them just like weren't home, right? They just weren't like, they just weren't able to be around. So these were, there were all these systemic challenges that were impacting my students' abilities to be successful and to be healthy. Um, and I ultimately left teaching because I wanted to work on these sort of systemic level pieces, right? And now when I think about diversity and inclusion, I think about social justice, I think a lot of us are um, really drawn to um, addressing the symptom as opposed to addressing the root cause. So like, for example, I know that after um, the murder of George Floyd, there's a big push for lots of people to donate, donate to, to all sorts of civil rights organizations. And those are important, like that's 100% something we should do. But I'd also wanna name that like, 
those organizations should have been shouldn't have been underfunded in the first place, right? And the issues that they were that they're that they're advocating for, those issues shouldn't have had to exist in the first place. And so something that addresses the symptom like donating will only get us so far. At some point, we also have to turn our attention to the larger issue of the actual barriers that are causing the need uh, for an address in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, that's also something that I've been thinking about a lot as well, because, yeah, I do agree that a lot of people tend to want to address the symptom or like the superficial event but i think yeah at the end of the day we really do need to focus and put work towards the the root and the systemic yeah the systemic root of that issue but it can be really intimidating i guess and it's a super big job um yeah that's and that's something that we will go into later into this episode too um but yeah kind of going on to the organizations that you're a part of now and the work and the events that you're planning right now um so i know that you talked about that you're currently on the job market but i know that you are a volunteer at um act to change and i was wondering if you would be able to um explain to the listeners what act to change is and like what kind of work slash events are you involved with at act to change and are there any particularly memorable events or experiences that you've had while volunteering there uh, for sure um so yeah uh, act to change is a national nonprofit. we're 100 volunteer for now um and we do work um to end bullying um especially within the api community um i think for a lot of folks they got to know act to change when it started as a public awareness campaign under the white house uh, under the obama administration's white house initiative on apis uh, but since then act to change has moved into um uh, separate uh, nonprofit. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've done a lot of things, but in the last few months specifically, just thinking about what the space that we're in now, uh, the main thing that we've sort of been known for is putting on um, uh, different sorts of webinars. Uh, we call them convos. So they started as COVID convos, and then uh, we did a pride convo, we did a solidarity convo, and we're about to do a classroom convo uh, this coming Friday. I'm not sure when this podcast drops, but uh, the first Friday of August is when we're doing this one year. Um, yeah, what I love about this work is that, you know, I, I think there are there's many many nonprofits within the API community that are doing all sorts of amazing things. But early on into our planning process for these convos, these webinars, we really wanted to take a different path than a lot of the other organizations. So kind of rewind back to when um, social distancing became a thing and everyone sort of an in-person programming sort of got shut down. There were a lot of webinars by lots of API organizations or API organizations that. Um, were really heavy. <laughs> and what I mean by that is like they were really content heavy. We'd sort of have like a marathon of guest speakers, um, all of whom were incredible activists and leaders in their own ways. And each of them would sort of share for five minutes about the dope work that they were doing. And after about an hour of this, I'd just be a little bit overwhelmed. I'd be sitting there being like, wow, 
that was that was really inspiring like okay <laughs> just like deep breaths you know um and the direction that we took with our covid convos was we really sort of wanted to create a more intimate space um, for folks to really just kind of process like how are we feeling and how are we doing with all of this you know um and i think that that a big part of that comes from our intentionality as being a youth-centric and a youth-serving organization we want the work that we do to be in support of youth and to be in support of young people right um for many of us that do this kind of work i think we're often we're often driven by the the hope of being the person that we needed ourselves when we were five ten years younger right um and so i think that's that's a lot of the work that we're doing now and so yeah and i'm also wondering um are there any specific lessons what that you've learned while you've um worked slash volunteered at act to change about bullying prevention because i you know you know that is sort of the focus of this organization and you mentioned that you have had your own experiences with bullying and i i guess it would be kind of helpful especially for our younger listeners um to yeah just get a little bit of an insight from you like when it comes to race targeted race-based bullying um, do you have any suggestions for what BIPOC young people, especially who are the victims of bullying, like what should they do in those situations? And do you have any suggestions for how others in their environment can sort of um, gain the courage to aid them when, whenever their friends or whenever people in their um, environment are getting bullied? And, you know, it can be as specific or as broad as you would like. Yeah, um, I'm do my best here. I, I think, you know, one at one level, something that I've learned from from this work is just how incredibly phenomenal our young people are, honestly, like just incredibly phenomenal, the leadership of young folks. I feel lucky that in the work that I've done and the work that I continue to do, I still get to, to be in a space where I get to interact with college students, high school students, even folks younger than that, because it reminds me to it reminds me that hope um, isn't naive when I think about just how phenomenal young folks are. So I think, you know, just in terms of a piece of piece of advice there for folks that are experiencing bullying, like don't let your bullies like and, and whether that bully is a person or a system, don't let your bullies keep you from realizing just how incredibly talented you are and the gifts that you have to offer for this world. Um, I think that's the most toxic piece about bullying, no matter the source, whether it's from a person or a system, is that it robs us of our ability to see the best part of ourselves, right? And even as adults, I think, you know, for lots of for lots of adult, for lots of professionals of color, uh, we talk about imposter syndrome a lot. For lots of Asian Americans, especially, there's a sense of imposter syndrome when they take on jobs that they feel they're not qualified for, but yet they got hired. But yet, like, like you got hired, like, no, like you're qualified, you know. Um, and so, in a similar way, um, that I think that's like one piece of advice that I, I'd love to stress. The other thing too, and this is a bit more tangible, practical, and will be on my workshop. Um, I, I have found the metaphor of imagining our own mental health and confidence as a bank account to be really useful. Um, I, I know like money related metaphors aren't the greatest thing. It's like a very capitalistic thing, but like just kind of put that to the side for a second. Um, what I mean by this metaphor is that if we imagine really difficult conversations or really difficult debates or even really difficult experiences as moments that are withdrawals on our sort of bank account of mental health and confidence, right? Then it stands to reason that we also need to do other activities that are investments, right? That can sort of replenish the bank account balance so that we have something to spend. 
I think a lot of times we look at folks who seem to have it all together and we think like, oh, I guess they like, they like got it together at one point. Like they figured it out at like one point and now they're just like coasting, right? Like now they're able to sort of just be confident all the time. Um, and maybe that's true for some people. I don't know, like maybe, but like for me, like that has not been true, right? Like for me, I've, I've had to, especially during this, this time of social distancing and the job hunt and all of that, I've had to be really intentional about building and uh, scheduling activities for me that remind me um, uh, that I have gifts to offer to others, right? I've been had to be intentional about finding ways to refill my bank account when I know that I'm about to expand it on something big coming up. Thank you for talking about that. Um, something else that you mentioned in our pre-meeting recording, pre-recording meeting that I thought was super interesting is that you said that you felt like your idea of what kind of work the Asian American community needs to engage in differs from that of other organizations. And I'm wondering if you would be able to expand a little bit on that. And I guess also in your various experiences, what do you feel like your vision is of the kind of work slash education that various Asian American communities need? Yeah. So I think that the way that we use Asian American generally is a little bit, um, it's, a, it's not misleading, it's not flawed, but it's missing something. Um, I, so I recently I, I read uh, Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. If folks haven't read, haven't read that or, or listened to it in audio, like super recommend, it's amazing. Um, she quotes Jeff Chang in this piece here around, um, she writes something along the lines of, um, I want to love us, the us being Asian Americans, uh, but I don't know who we are. Uh, so I want to love us, but I don't know who we are. Um, and I, I think about that a lot because I think that when we use the word Asian American, like for me, like I, I no longer get a really great sense of what people mean when we use that word anymore. Uh, and what I mean by that is, I think the way that we use Asian American now can sometimes be a bit neutral. We use it as sort of a biographical sort of descriptor um, in a really neutral way where we just like describe things as Asian American. Um, and I think that that forgets the history of Asian American as a term, right? Asian American was invented by student activists in the 60s who were um, explicitly building coalition and power between various Asian um, ethnicities for one, um, to protest the Vietnam War, two, to also be in solidarity um, and stand in community with other marginalized people of color, especially, um, the, especially the Black Liberation Movement. And so when I think about how the work, when I think about what you said, the work that I think Asian American organizations need to do, I think number one, we need to reclaim this activist history, right? Or at least like reconnect with it, get back in touch with it. I don't know. <laughs> it seems to have just been forgotten, right? I, I see the, the word Asian American used by many organizations, which I think is great. Like we need to be able to like leverage this term, but I don't feel it has the political punch um, that it used to. And when I say political, I don't mean Democrat or Republican or even voting, the sort of like general ways that we think about politics. I think about political as in terms of real in relationship to systems of power, privilege and oppression. Right. So when we talk about Asian Americans, that is an intentional way to build a coalition amongst people. But for what purpose? Like, for what purpose are we going to leverage the term Asian American for? You know, um, some of the, so the strongest sort of Asian American organizing in the past happened from a more class based lens. And I think we 
kind of forgotten all of that history. So I, I, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I do think there's this piece around sort of just getting comfortable being political, again, like lowercase p political, that I really would love Asian American organizations writ large to be doing. Do you feel like, I guess, what kind of benefits would you see um, if you put yourself in the shoes of maybe Asian Americans or Asian American organizations who feel the need to be apolitical? Like, what do you feel like the benefit of that would be? Yeah. I mean, I think at a certain point, all the sort of identities and the stereotypes around us are grounded in political systems, right? Um, the perpetual foreigner piece comes from a history of restricting immigration for Asian Americans, right? Uh, when I think about the model minority myth, that is deeply rooted in uh, the immigration practices and what kinds of what uh, which communities of Asian immigrants were allowed to even be here in the first place, right? So I think at one level, if I had to draw sort of a self-serving kind of piece around that, I would say that we talk about dismantling these stereotypes. You know, there are many corporate employee resource groups that talk about the model minority myth, but we don't talk about the larger systems of power, privilege, and oppression that make those things possible. Made those things possible possible in the first place and continue to make them possible, right? Um, at another level, I'd also say that, you know, the model minority myth, for example, was an image, a stereotype that was also explicitly created as a foil for Black Americans. It was meant to shame Black Americans. It was meant to say like, hey, look, these Asian Americans, these Chinese Americans, these Japanese Americans are doing great and they don't need any help at all. Why are y'all out here in the streets protesting? Right. Um, and so at, a, at another point, I think thinking about the, the space, the political space that we're in now, we have to recognize that these images and these systems are deeply dehumanizing to all folks. Um, and doing work that is political in nature, doing work that is to get in good trouble, right? As John Lewis said, getting in good trouble is something is, is, is a necessary part of being able to be full humans and to allow everyone to experience like their full humanity. And kind of going off of that, um, you recently started a page, an account on Instagram um, called Adjust Your Boba, and it's this new page uh, dedicated to, and I'm quoting from your account, Asian American identity coaching and racial justice resources. So um, first, purely from a selfish uh, perspective, can you tell me the story behind the name Adjust Your Boba? And also, can you um, tell the listeners about why you wanted to start this conversation coaching page? And I guess also why specifically call it conversation coaching? Yeah, yeah. So this goes back to right after the murder of George Floyd. I saw more engagement around Black Lives Matter on my Facebook page than I'd ever seen before. Um, the last time that I, you know, maybe just as context here, I'll share that. As someone that has been thinking about racial justice and oppression for a long time, I'm very used to my Facebook feed being a very disappointing place where I see people talking about everything except that, you know. Um, the last time that I sort of thought that change, genuine systemic change might be possible was after the murder of Philando Castile. So Philando Castile was a black man in Minnesota um, where his, the school that he worked in uh, was 15 minutes away from my apartment. And so when he was shot and killed during a traffic stop, um, through no fault of his own. He did everything that he that the, the officer asked him to do. So that was a, a really big moment of activation for me in terms of um, really 
uh, that was the first time I went out to a Black Lives Matter protest. It was it was a huge mode of activation for me in terms of thinking about my role um, as an ally and as an accomplice and a co-conspirator for and in solidarity with Black-led organizations and Black Lives Matter. And, you know, for the first 24 hours after the video came out, it seemed like everyone else that I knew also cared deeply. And there was so much energy on Facebook that I was like, yeah, like something's going to change. Something's going to change. And then Pokemon Go came out like the next day and my Facebook feed was completely different. Everyone was posting about their, and like, I mean, I downloaded it too. Like I, I, you know, I enjoyed it as well, but it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, like people really just don't care as much as they say they do, you know? But then it was different after George Floyd's murder. Um, it really was different. I saw people that I had met in college that in college seemed to be very model minority aspiring or at least very least, very least model minority affirming were like talking or like sharing these resources and sharing um, all, these, all these articles. And I began to think about, you know, what can I do really? Like, what can I do to be a part of this? What can I do to be of service to others? Um, and I realized that, you know, through the, the nature of where I had worked and the, the, the communities and the spaces that I'd been able to be a part of, I was coming into these conversations and coming into the space just with a lot more background knowledge and pre-work done that hadn't been afforded to a lot of uh, my friends and acquaintances. Um, so, you know, I, after college, after graduating from Columbia University of all places, I did Teach for America and I was able to be a part of a community of folks that care deeply about racial justice. And a lot of my friends who went straight into finance or consulting or tech, like just didn't have this, this, this background work done. And so I started this coaching page because I wanted to be a resource for them. I wanted to sort of share some of the stuff that I had learned over the years um, and, and just be a place for folks to ask questions. Because as much as we need people to do their individual work, right, as much as we need people to like Google the thing, do the research, think about it yourself, do the cognitive labor, don't put it on other people. As an educator, I also recognize that it can be a lot easier when you have someone to ask questions throughout the process, right? Um, in terms of the name, I'm not going to lie, that like was a little bit tongue in cheek and a little bit also serious. So like I, I kind of came up with it because um, I wanted something friendly, honestly, and I wanted something that would sort of speak uniquely to Asian Americans. But I also do think there is something a little bit more meaningful here around this piece around adjust your boba. So, you know, like for those of us who grew up in communities where we got, we actually were asked, like, you know, how much sugar do you want and stuff like that. It's like becomes a very sort of identity defining thing, right? Like, oh my God, you get like 100% sugar. Uh, Whereas like I'm the 50% sugar, no boba person. I know, dramatic. Um, but I wanted some piece around that, right? Like this piece around tailored individualized coaching, much as we might tailor and individualize our boba. I love that. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, and I know that you've had quite a few conversations already, even though you've only recently started this. Would you be able to share what kinds of conversations you've been engaging in lately um, through that page and also what kinds of topics have you been discussing anything that comes up particularly frequently and also any general trends that you're seeing um, in terms of the people who are seeking conversations or um, the issues that you're discussing in those conversations yeah, totally. Um, I'm, I'm happy to share that it was pretty successful, I think. 
Um, and I, I, part of that was is the fact that I made it completely free because I didn't want it. I didn't want price to be a barrier to anyone. But within the first um, two months, I spoke with over 50 folks. Um, and since then, I've kind of lost track. But it's it's been a good. It's been a fairly interesting spread. What what I've really appreciated about it is the true diversity of folks' experiences. So I've had lots of conversations with people actually all over the world now, and some of them have really focused on the identity piece. I think for some folks. They were maybe the only Asian American growing up in their small town um, and or they've had experiences that have made them really distance themselves from their Asian American identity. And so in some of these conversations, uh, all I'm doing is putting vocabulary to experience because once we have vocabulary to discuss something, then we understand that it is not just me, right? Like enough people have experienced this that we have a word to describe it. So talking about imposter syndrome, the model minority myth, talking about the fetishization of Asian American women, uh, talking about the desexualization of Asian American men, all sorts of these kinds of larger sort of archetypes, just putting vocabulary to them. Um, some other folks have really come asking for conversation and guidance around uh, actionable steps, like what can we do, you know? Um, and with this, I've been doing, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that my work has always kept me proximal to folks in the political se sector or the community organizing sector, because uh, then I can share tips and guidance around, you know, building relationships with people so that you can organize around something, having hosting house meetings so people can come together and share their experiences. Um, thankfully, I think there's a lot of energy out there for folks to, I think a lot of folks realize that it's not, it can't just be in your head, right? Like activism isn't just something you read or think about, it is something that you do. Um, and so a lot of those conversations have been about that piece as well. Um, in terms of general trends, I, I will share that something that I found kind of frustrating, honestly, was that I, I started tracking like midway through, I started tracking like who were the folks that I chatted with and what were the things that we chatted about. And I realized towards the end that over 90% of the 50 or so folks that I chatted with were all women. They all identified as Asian American women. It was really rare for me to find Asian American men who, who, who booked, a, who booked a, a coaching call with me. Um, obviously, like, you know, I, this was not a scientific study or anything like that, right? Like, I, I literally just posted on Instagram, like, hi, like, I'm Richard and I would like to talk to you if you want to talk about race and racism, you know. Uh, but I, I do think there's, there is something there, you know, like, why was it so hard or not? Mm, see, I'm putting judgments on it already when I don't mean to, but why is it that, you know, over 90% of the folks who reached out to me were women, you know? Um, I, 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 I think I do, I am comfortable sharing that with some, with many of the women that I chatted with, some of the experiences that they had, the negative experiences that they had thinking about Asian American identity came from Asian American partners that they had had in the past who had left sort of really toxic ideas about Asian American masculinity and Asian American community with them. Um, all that is to say, you know, I, I think there's, there's work for all of us to do, but I will wager to say that there is more work for Asian American men to do, and we need to be doing more to be a part of this conversation. Yeah, that's, yeah, that goes into my next question really well, because after you posted that on your Instagram page, that really got me thinking because I've noticed that general trend as well in my social media feeds. And granted, maybe the majority of people that I follow on Instagram are women, but still, I was noticing that not as many men um we're were like posting anti-racism resources you know events to go to and stuff like that um 
Yeah, and that has been something that I've been thinking about too, and I'm and I'm excited to talk to you about this. But I guess first, do you have any thoughts as to why that is? Why do we see this? Why do many of us see this trend of not as many Asian American men or just men in general um, seeking to have conversations about racism, um, anti-blackness, activism? Yeah. Yeah. I I wish I knew the answer to this question because I think it deeply concerns me that not only does the question exist, but that I don't have an answer for that, right? I find that very like really stressful (laughs) as you're like asking me. But I think, you know, a part of it might be just the ways that we think about what masculinity looks like, right? I think Asian American men, I can only speak from my experience, I should say. I, I know that as a, if, when I think about my identities as an Asian American man, I have struggled with um, sort of the common sort of stereotypes and archetypes of what that is supposed to look like, right? Um, I think about often, you know, when I was growing up in elementary school, uh, before PE or like for reset for like teams for like games at recess, the teacher would like pick like two kids, right, to like be captains, and then they would sort of just like turn by turn pick people to be on their team. I don't know if you ever had to do this yourself, but uh, this was like a very stressful experience for me because usually like all of the other guys would be picked first and then some of the girls would be picked and then I would be picked um and I don't know that necessarily had everything to do with my race because again I grew up you know surrounded by lots of other Asian Americans but I definitely was like not a very athletic kid like I was definitely like a really awkward like uncoordinated super nerdy kid growing up right and like this was like very it it was very it was really hurtful for me um to see all the guys be picked and then some of the girls and then me right so i I know that like i personally have had difficulty thinking about the intersection of race and gender for a long time but when i see toxic masculinity on the internet especially i do feel that a lot of asian american men really try to aspire for the confidence that of that masculinity promises uh but in order to do so, they invisibilize and erase um, their racial identity. So they think more about what it means to be a man than they do about what it means to be Asian American. And I do think there is something there around it, just like the erasure of like our racialized identities. Um, I also think, you know, more generally, there's something around toxic masculinity, right? There's something around this piece for men to like not show emotions, to not be reflective, to not realize that we don't, we aren't right all the time, that we have things to learn from, right? Um, I do, I do think there's sort of internalized piece there. This is, this is the last thing that I'll say here too, before I want to get your thoughts. Um, this is like a very like theoretic, like slight, like academic sounding argument here as well. But I, I also wonder if there is something around people distancing themselves um, from any sort of marginalized identity, right? And so for Asian American men who sit at that intersection and can see masculinity as the dominant sort of privileged um, archetype on the gender identity sort of side, and then see their race as a marginalized identity, I wonder if there's a piece there around just like, we're just gonna distance ourselves from that piece and just focus on how we can um, really align ourselves with power by focusing on masculinity as opposed to race, right? Um, Yeah, I wonder, I'm curious to hear what you think about that though. I know that was a lot. No, yeah, thank you so much for sharing. I, okay, what you just brought up just, like, got me thinking. I think that, that makes sense, like, when you talk about how Asian American men feel like their masculinity is something that 
like should be, I don't know, preserved, protected, um, rather than their Asian American identity. Yeah. And I, and I wonder if it, if, if it feels like, like I can't speak because I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an Asian American male, but I wonder if, yeah, they feel like in order to reach out to someone and to start a conversation about activism, social justice, or to reach out to you, for example, and be like, I don't know, I need help to process through these things. If that is sort of a blow to their, to their, to their power, um, somehow. Um, and yeah, actually after we had our, um, pre-recording meeting, I really wanted to try to get to the bottom of this and see if other people were experiencing a really similar thing in terms of seeing this gender divide in the type in the conversations that they were having and also like on their social media feeds i guess um and so i put out like an informal survey on my instagram story i was like yeah like do you do you do you see this trend um in your lives as well and yeah i'd love to know your thoughts about like why this is if you if you do experience this and I had a lot of um, women, uh, females reach out to me and be like, I definitely do also experience this. I also noticed that, like some people were saying, like I have not seen one, like for example, one white man post about um, social media, about uh, social justice and um, Black Lives Matter um, during this entire time in quarantine, which is kind of, which is kind of scary to me. Um, but yeah this this guy who i don't really know too well but we're friends on uh instagram he was explaining to me how he feels like he 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 feels intimidated he feels scared to um reach out to people to have conversations and um post something regarding like i don't know he I don't want to like put words in his mouth, but let's say uh, regarding like activism and specifically like dismantling, calling out sexism and um, patriarchal frameworks because he feels like people will call him out as um, hypocritical or performative, um, which I mean, I guess like, yeah, it's I mean, you know, that's that's his experience. Those are his thoughts. but. I don't know, I guess that that confused me a little bit because like first of all, like why why is this like why is it so important to you that others may view you as um hypocritical or performative if that is, you know, something that you truly believe in? Um and in order like if you if why do you feel like if you're going to post something um calling out racism or sexism that you sort of have to distance yourself from your masculinity and like that is something that you're scared of i guess um yeah a lot of lots of thoughts and questions that i still have yeah i mean that's really interesting um my immediate sort of reaction to that when you shared that was like you know, one of, honestly, I was a little judgmental. I was like, wait, really? Like, that's your barrier? Like, you're afraid of, like, you know, making a mistake because, like, this work, it's impossible to, like, not make mistakes, right? Like, and that's, 
that's that's part of this, you know. But I, I, I as I was hearing you sort of um, share that, and I was processing a little bit more. I think I, I also started to sort of zoom out a little bit and think, like, you know, I mean, this is a little bit of what it means to be a person of color or to be any other sort of marginalized person, right? Is that I think we're all held to very perfectionist ideas, um, and so there is always a fear of 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 not being perfect, because in so many ways, white supremacy culture writ large tells us that we have to be perfect in ways that we can't be, right? Um, so I, I wonder if the solution here, I don't know if we've really pinned down the sort of root cause here, but I wonder if part of the solution, right, is just normalizing the process for men of color to have these kinds of conversations with one another in a space that they're allowed to, you know. Um, I've been doing a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion consulting lately, and for some organizations, they're really struggling with like what to do with affinity spaces or like employee resource groups, which are not the same thing, but often overlap in terms of what they do. Um, and the way that I think about it, you know, affinity spaces, spaces for people who share a certain identity to come together and talk, that is not where the work gets done, but that is where people go to seek the confidence and have the courage to be able to get the work done in larger spaces, right? So I'm thinking a lot about, you know, how can we normalize, uh, how can we create a normalized space for Asian American men to talk about their masculinity with one another in a way where we can make those mistakes and put the cognitive labor on each other um, such that we can really like, you know, show up as allies um, in, in the outer space. Um, I think that is one of the things that I was that I was given through my professional career was facilitated workshops and spaces with other Asian Americans to think about our identity and what to do with it um, that I know lots of other folks do not get the chance to do. Um, and so in a way, that's what I was trying to do with tying it back to the coaching thing. That's in a way, that's what I was trying to do um, was create, you know, a facilitated space for people to, to have these kinds of conversations that maybe we didn't realize we needed to have them until we were right in the middle of having it. Yeah, I, I know that, you know, we've got a lot of other questions, but something that you mentioned that reminded me of a conversation I had with my dad um, a couple of days ago about toxic masculinity. And I'm just really curious as to how, I'll just say men, men are raised by their parents compared to um women and sort of how like what different ideas are their parents what different ideas expectations and stereotypes are they putting on their children based on their gender um and i guess that when you were talking about how we need to sort of form environments and spaces where um men and asian american men feel more comfortable talking about their masculinity i think it's super important to also think about how you know, like the environments that they're growing up in and like the ways that maybe their parents are are conditioning. Uh, that's probably not the right word, but conditioning them. Um, yeah, not trying to critique parents out there, I guess, but something something to think about. No, I think it's super valid. No, don't worry. I'm not, I'm not listening. I'm not listening to you being like Angel Venus out here, like critiquing parents, y'all. Like, no, I, I think you bring up a good point, right? Like patriarchy is all around us. Um, and there is so much that all of us could be doing to, to be dismantling that in, in all the ways that we, that, we, that we raise kids, regardless of race. I do think there is a specific, right, like need for an intersectionalized um, awareness and approach for when we think about how to raise men of color and specifically non-black men of color, and I guess specifically Asian American men. Um, um, you know, I, what, based on what you were saying, you were making me wonder, like, 
where where is the descendant of um, sort of patriarchy and paternalism um, in historical Asian cultures, and how does that show up when we are raising um, immigrant children here in the United States? Right, there's there's like a piece there that I think is worth worth thinking about. For sure, I definitely think that there is a cultural um, there are cultural differences in that as well. Um, but uh, moving on to our next question. Um, so yeah this is something that i've brought up to a couple of my friends um and we we we've we've thought a little bit about why this is but i'm interested in knowing um so like in my experience for example i think a lot of asian americans um in my community especially when i was growing up in my extremely small town in the middle of rural missouri i felt that you know, I'm like the Asian population definitely by like by no means was huge, but there were Asian Americans in my community. And I felt like instead of having a sense of solidarity between us, it was always there was always a sense of competition and that I needed to be better than that Asian American person um, in terms of academics, my extracurriculars, in my social life, etc. And you talked about how you were bullied by a lot of Korean American men when you were growing up. So you've definitely had that experience. But do do you have any thoughts as to why there sort of is this um, maybe difficulty in having a sense of solidarity with other Asian Americans in our community? And I don't want to generalize, but um, yeah, in, in terms of your perspectives and your experiences. Yeah, and I love how you um, also frame that question with not wanting to generalize because it's difficult to give an answer for everything, right? Like I think in some ways we can say that, um, I, I think in some ways we can say that it's a legacy of um, a really, really violent 20th century in Asia, right? With lots of Asian countries like, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of violence and war and oppression there that has not been resolved at all, right? At another level, I also think that, you know, um, it can be this piece around when you know that there's not that many of you and you, there you feel like there's this sort of winner take all mentality and there's this like sense of competition, right? There's this sense of like, well, it's like I've got to be the best one kind of a piece. Um, I think at another level, you know, we also think around, we also think about for so many of our communities, the, the sort of the idea of being uh, this, this idea of a pan-Asian or like this Asian American racial solidarity, like that is a very sort of um, American term. And there's a very sort of American construct that number one, like didn't exist in Asia for many of our parents' generation. And number two, like I said, like we've talked about earlier, we've also kind of forgotten the sort of solidarity piece uh, around that. And we use Asian American as a sort of demographic descriptor when it was originally intended as a, as a coalition, as a term of coalition building, right? Um, so I, I think there's all sorts of reasons why this, this competition exists. But I think what makes me, um, what gives me hope is that within, you know, an understanding of why these things exist, I think there's also an answer for how to stop these things, right? Like, we need to be educating and including the history of Asian American activism in our K through 12 schools, right? Um, students, teachers, educators, administrators need to understand that Asian American is this massive monolithic umbrella term that does not adequately capture the differences between so many communities. 
And so even if we, again, I guess, even if we don't have the, 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 the sort of root cause, the problem totally figured out, we can start to do some of the work of figuring out what an answer to this problem might look like. Yeah, for sure. I think there's definitely a lot of um, merit and a lot of weight to that history of war and tension between a lot of uh, countries in Asia. And I think especially for a lot of us who are first generation Americans, like our parents were immigrants, you know, they're carrying that potential trauma and that history with them. And, you know, either in, in, in explicitly or explicitly, they might be feeding that to um, their, their children, I guess. Um, and I guess in my experience, I mean, my mom is Chinese and my dad is Korean. There's already a tension within that. But um, yeah, there's just like so much history that I am beginning to learn and find out about. And yeah, I guess I'm, I am definitely trying my best to like understand that they have this history and they have this potential trauma and like not trying to like mitigate that um and make it seem like invalid or unworthy but also like not trying to take their experience it and generalize it to the experiences that i'm having with people of other um, asian ethnicities or people of other races um in my day-to-day -day life too um yeah I just wanted to lift up, you know, I, I know this is in our notes, we chat about this during our, our pre-meeting, but um, the idea of like racial triangulation, right? Um, so I, I know this was on one of your previous episodes, but Clergy and Kim's idea of racial triangulation being that Asian Americans identify themselves um, based on triangulation, by situating ourselves between white, white folks and black folks. Um, and we had sort of talked about, you know, does that happen within the Asian community as well, right? Do various Asian American communities look at each other um, and sort of try to triangulate themselves within the white supremacist cultural um, hierarchy of the United States um, by looking at each other? Um, I just want to name that, like, I think there's some value to that, right? I think there's something about that piece um, around looking at other, organ other communities and trying to figure out how you can succeed in ways that unfortunately oftentimes reinforce whiteness um, and reinforce classism right yeah i think that was super cool when you mentioned that in the in the pre-meeting i was like wow yeah that's 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 so interesting and that's so true because i mean a lot of people are talking about this now but when we say asian american a lot of what comes to mind is uh, specifically east asian um east asian dominant narratives and um yeah, I think there are definitely a lot of disparities in terms of economic priv privilege and just experiences in general that we see within the Asian diaspora, I guess. Um, I don't know if this um, plays into that part at all, but like, I think, you know, this, this goes back to actually one of the first questions you asked me today about like, where did like the passion and the interest come from? I think a big part of the reason why I got really, you know, interested in working on Asian American stuff was not just because of the childhood bullying, but because I also got the chance to teach Asian American kids when I was teaching in Minnesota. Um, more than half of my students were Hmong. And I didn't know who or what Hmong people were before I moved to Minnesota. Right. And I think there are there are many Asian American community leaders or Asian American organization leaders who sort of 
understand very conceptually that the Asian American umbrella is like a very like diverse community and that the term is is unwieldy as, as Kathy Park Hong says. But I, I don't think that they necessarily feel it. I don't think they necessarily emotionally like really understand how truly diverse this community is and how that diversity makes us a really difficult community to organize and build solidarity internally, right? Um, so no, I, I think that's definitely important to lift up. I, I wish more people thought about that um, and also just like had the experiences to really feel um, how diverse um, this and, and unwieldy this term of Asian American is. Absolutely. Um, something else that I want to ask is, I think I've noticed this and I'm, probably a lot of people out there have noticed that, especially during this time with a lot of protests and with uh, a lot of people supporting the Black Lives Matter movement and protesting and a lot of counter protests that are coming up. Um, I've just been seeing a lot of like the people trying to say oh if you are like why are you being so uh like passionate about changing your city like if you don't like it just leave like go back to wherever you came from etc 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 um which is a lot of which is rhetoric that many of us asian americans have probably faced in a lot of different circumstances but my question to you is why do you feel like people are so averse to changing their environment, even when it may be for the better? It's a really tough question. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wanna take a stab at it, but then I wanna hear your thoughts also. I think that at one level, I think at one level folks genuinely understand that racism did not end with the election of President Obama. I think people understand that racism is real and alive in this country and that systems of oppression may not look the same that they used to, but they certainly have metastasized the way that a cancer does and they're not gone from our country. And I think people are really averse to, 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 to being real with that um, openly because they recognize their privilege and they are worried about losing something, right? There's that sense that uh, when you've had privilege for a really, really long time, equality or even equity feels like oppression because you are made to lose something. Um, and to a certain extent, like at a, from an economic standpoint, like I don't know that that's going to be true. I'm not an economist. Like I don't really know these things. But I, I do genuinely believe that, you know, um, whether or not that's true or not is actually missing the point. We're um, like missing the point that like injustices have happened and still continue to happen. And it is ultimately not about those people's feelings. It is about the feelings and the rights of the people who are oppressed, right? Um, so I, I think there's something there. The other thing that I think a lot about is meritocracy. I think we in this country have really sort of built it into our consciousness. Um, and I see this especially within the Asian American community, actually. Um, but I think we've really built it into our consciousness, this idea that whatever we have, whatever we own, whatever privileges we enjoy, we have them because we deserve them. And on the flip side, those who do not have these things, they must have done something to therefore not deserve them, you know? Um, and I think about a system like the mass incarceration system. I don't quite remember the exact statistic, but I know it's over 90%. Over 90% of people in jail right now have never gone to trial and been found guilty. 
Um, over 90% of people right now sitting in America's jails are there because they either couldn't pay bail or they took a plea bargain because they were scared or forced into it or whatever, right? And so when you think about a system like that, like, no, like we have over 90% of people are in jail and they did not deserve it, right? Like there's no evidence to say that they deserved it, right? So I think what's real, to go back to answer your question, I think this ties in because folks are resistant to change because they, to, to recognize that they have privileges that they did not earn is actually like a really deep strike to their sense of self-identity and the ways that they identify and categorize other people who don't have as much as they do, you know? And I think it's really hard for people to come to terms with that. Um, okay, first, would you be able to uh, define, talk a little bit more about what meritocracy is just for, just in case there are any listeners who are not sure of what that means? Yeah, 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 totally. So meritocracy is like, it's like a system uh, based on merit, merit being the idea that like, you, you are meritorious of something, you deserve something, you are worth something. So meritocracy is the idea that, you know, we give people power, positions, money, whatever, based on the fact that they deserve it. Um, and what they, um, the ways that we define what they deserve, um, that is the piece around merit. So like, if, for example, just to make this more concrete, we think about college admissions, right? We want to believe that getting into college is a very meritocratic system in the sense that um, you got into this school because you deserved it. You worked hard, you studied, you stayed up really late and you crammed the SATs and therefore you deserve to get into this college. When in reality, actually meritocracy, the, the academic or the person who coined the term, whose name I do not remember because I didn't pay attention in college, but the person who came up with the term actually came up with it as a, as a, as a term of irony, right? The idea being that a full system of meritocracy is actually not something we want. Um, and so uh, to bring that back to the college admissions thing, we want to believe that we studied really hard and we worked really hard in our classes, so we scored well in the SAT, when in reality, the SAT is actually a better indicator of your socioeconomic status than anything else. It's a matter of like what kinds of words were you exposed to growing up as a kid and in your schools, um, less so about what you studied. Thank you. Um, and yeah, sort of my thoughts, I, I mean, I 100% feel like that kind of rhetoric that you can't live in a place and simultaneously want to improve it is super problematic. I, like, I think from my own perspective, like I completely acknowledge like my privilege of being able to grow up in the United States compared to other places. And I totally acknowledge that, you know, my parents immigrated here to provide me with a better life. I acknowledge that and I know that, but at the same time, like, why can't I? Yeah, I feel like I said, I feel like the rhetoric that you can't change a place for the better is, I don't know, it's just, it's just not great. And yeah, I think a lot of people are scared and resistant of change because they're afraid of losing what they have. And that piece that you were talking about meritocracy, like I, that's a lot to wrap my mind around. So I have to think about that a little bit more. But yeah, I think another piece is something that you mentioned um, in our pre-meeting is that a lot of people just can't wrap their minds around the fact that racism is a system of oppression. And it's this, it has this huge history that people are just unable to understand and process and acknowledge. And I think that is definitely something that's super important to say because 
yeah, like for sure. Like when it, when I've been having um, conversations with different family members, like particular family members are telling me that, oh, I've never seen, like, I've never witnessed a black person, for example, um, be the victim of racism. And that's just like, it just like, that drains so much out of me because it's like, first of all, we live in, like I said, we live in a very rural, very white town in, in Missouri. There's just not that many black residents period here. And also like, when have you inter when have you interacted when have you tried to interact with other with people of like other races who aren't asian or white um but yeah it, i just think that for sure i've seen that in my own experience of people just being not being able to understand this huge huge system and i don't know just being averse to being educated about it and being um, taught to think otherwise. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what you're speaking to there is this piece around, um, we're all shaped by our experiences. We're all, we're all shaped by the lived experiences that we have. And sometimes we don't necessarily recognize the systems that are at play and shaping what kinds of experiences we get exposed to in the first place, right? I did not grow up really having many, if at all, like black friends, ever and that changed because i went to i went to i went to new york city for college and so my lens now is dramatically different than if i had stayed in southern california or if i had you know gone to gone to a uc that didn't have a, a large percentage of black students like all these experiences shape the reality that we have um, and so I do think, you know, this goes back to just like questioning people's identity when we bring up these questions. I do think we are fundamentally questioning a lot of folks' um, conception of what America really is and what their country is. Um, and for folks who have never sort of had lived experiences to A, give them like context into other communities' experiences and or B, um, have never had experiences that made themselves like feel alienated or feel othered or feel marginalized by the system, it can be difficult to imagine like the depths of that reality for other people, you know? Um, and I think this is the root of, um, for a lot of social justice language online, you see a lot of like white folks, like you're never going to understand this X, Y, Z. Um, and I think that's true to a certain extent. I think that's true emotionally, right? People who have not suffered oppression along this lens will never understand what it's like. Like I will never understand what it's like to be denied access to a bathroom because of someone else's idea of my gender identity, right? But here's the, the, here's the, the sort of saving part of that. That does not mean that I cannot intellectually understand that this oppression exists if enough people are telling me about it. And I am open to the understanding the idea that my lived experience of America is not other folks' lived experience of America, right? Um, so there, there has to be some piece here around just like humanization, <laughs> humanizing the fact that like, it's not like some conspiracy, y'all, like a bunch of people are telling you this is what happens and like, this is what happens, you know? <laughs> yeah. For sure, yeah. Oh man, yeah. Uh, lots of thoughts on that. Um, yeah. I feel like we could talk forever. <laughs> I feel like we, we've opened up like a can of worms here. <laughs> <laughs> we just talked about so many things today. I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to process. I need to process. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I really appreciate this. But okay, final thing that I want to talk about. And yeah, and just like to the listeners, please know that like, this is definitely tip of the iceberg of things that, you know, need to be addressed. And hopefully it allows you to 
you know, it, hopefully it brings up different questions in your mind that you can sort of start thinking about as well. Um, yeah. Last thing that I want to discuss today is this so-called social media activism um, and the rise of using uh, these super aesthetic and well-curated posts on Instagram specifically, I've seen, to educate people and especially young, eh, educate people, um, I'll get into the young people part later, about complex political topics, social topics, uh, political conflicts. And I'm really, really curious to know your thoughts on these, these types of posts and just distributing news on social media in general, because this is something that I've really wanted to talk to someone about, but because I'm sort of holed up in my home, I, I'm not really able to do that with too many people. But yeah, feel free to share your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think they have a, I think they have a role. I think they have a, a valuable place in sort of, you know, um, systems change and organizing and all of that. When I think about social media, social media is the reason why we have like Black Lives Matter, right? Because so many quote unquote established credentialed news organizations wouldn't cover these stories. And it took regular people whipping out their cell phones to record these, you know, these incidents of police brutality and whatnot, and having them go viral on social media that made folks actually pay attention to it. So in some way, I'd say, you know, this piece around um, posting as a form of education, like I, I think it definitely like falls in that and there's like a, a place for it for sure. Um, I also think though to a certain extent, and this is coming from someone that identifies as an educator, I also believe that like education like is great and you have to like do something with what you learn, right? Like um, the most anti-racist book club actually does nothing to like dispel racism, right? Like you don't, you don't, you don't become anti-racist by, by reading about anti-racism. You actually have to go and like do something with this, right? And so that's the other piece too around social media um, um, is that, that, I, that I hope folks are thinking about is that it's not just about reading the article. It's not just about reading the latest book. It's not just about following the podcast or whatever. It's also like about tangibly, like what are you going to do with this knowledge that you have earned and, and gained like through social media? Do you feel like social media makes people complacent? Ooh, that's interesting. I think it can. I think it can. For some folks, yeah. I think for some folks might use it as an outlet, right? Um, to avoid sort of deeper, more necessary work. Um, but I don't think social media necessarily um, makes everyone complacent. Um, I, f I, I, I feel affirmed that for the, the sort of folks that I can think of and the work that I've done and the folks that I've been able to meet, like these are folks who are using social media in a really powerful way. Um, but tell me more about why you're saying that. I wonder if you feel that way based on the fact that you asked me that question. I guess I've just been thinking a lot about how young people, and I'd say, yeah, like teenagers, people, I guess people who are younger than me, um, like people my sister's age, she's 15. Uh, how they're using social media and consuming the content that's on social media. Because I'm just really worried that they will only read and seek out the most pretty and aesthetic posts, and they will take that post um, verbatim to heart and think that is the truth. Um, and not follow up on that, like you were kind of saying, but not, you know, I, I, I'm just like for me, I've realized recently, I've just realized how important 
media is. And like when I'm thinking about how the truth is like so important to me, I feel like I can no longer trust a singular news source. Like I have to definitely take issues from different sources and sort of parse them out myself because I, I, I just don't know who or what to trust anymore. And I'm just scared that a lot of young people will do that when it comes to um, social media posts and especially posts that are uh, that are really oversimplifying a lot of like policies and political conflicts especially um yeah and i think in that sense if people feel like that doing that one post reading is one and done then yeah i think it does it, it can make them complacent i hear you i hear you yeah no i i, I see that uh, but I think that's a critique that isn't just for young people, you know, I think that's a critique that we should extend to to adults as well, right? Um, the idea that we necessarily get drawn and attached to like the prettiest looking thing on social media, whatever that might like look like for or whatever that might um, consist of for different folks. Um, and the idea that like activism ends there, right? The idea that activism ends at your phone um, is, is something that I, I have a problem with. Um, that being said, like, I think I also recognize that, you know, this this is often the starting point for many folks um and so if this is the way to get folks engaged and get them looped into the movement at one level or another then i think there's value in that um and something else i'm also thinking about is you know i started thinking about this when i was a classroom teacher but i don't know that our schools and rough just like generally like in like life like as a, even as a semi-functioning adult that i am um, i don't know that we are taught or encouraged or pushed to think about media the, uh, critically the way that you just sort of outlined, right? To, to look at something and really question whether or not this is believable or to, to think about it in, in conversation with other forms of media, to put ideas um, in conversation with one another. Um, this is one of the things that I, I think, you know, we, we, when we talk about, we were talking earlier about toxic masculinity and gender norms, right? Like, I think we'd be a much healthier society if we ask kids to analyze the, kit, the, car, the toy commercials that they get exposed to, right? Or to analyze like the cartoons that we, this, the YouTube ads that I seem to be assaulted by like all the time now. Like I think we'd be a much better society if we taught folks to be a little bit more critical and reflective um, of media and its, and its impact on how we are shaping our identities, right? Um, so I, I, I guess all that to say is that like, yeah, I see your point, uh, but I think that's like a universally like applicable problem. Yeah, for sure. And for any listeners who think that, I don't know if you, if you like, I hope you're getting a lot from this podcast, but like, don't feel like just by doing a singular reading or by listening to a specific podcast or by reading a specific post on social media that is completely um, indicative of the truth. And uh, just like be wary of that, I guess. Um, but yeah. Richard, thank you so much for um, having this very long conversation with me. I'm so grateful. Um, that is all the questions that I put uh, for today's agenda. But before I end the episode, I just wanted to do a round of rapid fire questions with you. I do this with every guest on the podcast. Super fun, super casual just so the listeners can get to know you in a more fun or a different context. So if you don't have anything else to add, are you ready to do the rapid fire question? I am ready. I am ready. I do not have anything else to add. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Though. This is really fun. I know we talked about like 
everything. <laughs> like, uh, so I know there's like so much more we could have chatted about, but I appreciate you for reaching out and everything. So no, let's go, let's go for it. All righty. The first question, what do you do to relax? Uh, wow. <laughs> so it's so hard to answer all of a sudden. Um, I listen to podcasts. I listen to NPR podcasts and I play a lot of video games. Nice. What is your favorite book by an Asian American author? Minor Feelings by Kathy Parkhoff. Really good. I, I need to buy that. Um, okay. This one's kind of a heavy one. Where do you want to be in 10 years? Oh gosh. Um, I want to be happy in 10 years. Uh, yeah, I want to be happy. Um, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like, but I, I just know that I want to be happy and fulfilled and doing work that is meaningful. And where do you want the world to be in 10 years? Same. I want the world to be happy. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, okay. I can actually name a couple of like very specific things here. So like number one, I really want this, not maybe not the world, but America specifically. I really want us as a country to be at a place where we are have, if not actively done reparations, we are planning it. Like we are actively doing research on what reparations looks like. I want us to have a really, really strong sort of sense of um, injustice in terms of what this country has done in the past and what it continues to do. Um, and I want a space for Asian Americans to feel like we belong, like writ large. Like I want Asian Americans to know that this country is theirs as well, and that we belong. Great, okay, and final question. What is your favorite event that you've organized slash been involved with? Um, it can be while you were, you were at Act to Change or you know, with any other organization. Yeah, yeah. Favorite event, beginning of 2019, January, me and my friends, not my co coworkers, not my whatever colleagues, my friends. My friends and I hosted um, a Southern California, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander educators conference. Um, it was completely grassroots run. We like, we're not doing it for any of our jobs. We fundraised for it. Held a conference for about 80 or so educators all across California to come together and talk about um, how do we center ANHPI um, narratives, especially in education. We, we carved out our own conference uh, specifically focused on ANHPI kids. I'm super, super proud of the work that we did for that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Richard. That is all the rapid fire questions. But I just want to thank you so much again for agreeing to do this, coming onto the podcast. Um, you've been such an amazing guest. And I just really want to thank you for being so vulnerable because I know it can be super scary to, you know, like share your not necessarily fully formed thoughts on such a pu public platform like a podcast. And yeah, I think it's super difficult sometimes to think out loud and, and put your raw thoughts out there. But I really appreciate you doing this. Um, and yeah, before you go, where can people reach out to you if they have any questions or want to talk to you about um, any of the topics that we've covered today? And also, do you have any events that you want to promote to the listeners? Yeah, um, for sure. If folks want to find me, um, you can find me on Instagram at adjustyourboba. Uh, you can also find me on my website, um, and there's a link uh, on my website to email me, which is www.richardleong.me. That's Richard, L-E-O-N-G.me. Um, folks are also more than welcome to find me on LinkedIn. I'm super active on LinkedIn, so just look for my name, Richard Leong, there as well. 
Um, in terms of events or things, you know, uh, there's always stuff coming up. Follow me on Instagram to, to see that stuff. Maybe one thing I will lift up is that uh, right now I'm doing a bunch of webinars um, with um, an organization called the Nonprofit Learning Lab. So if you go to nonprofitlearninglab.org slash webinars, there's like a long list there, but look for the stuff by me. I'm doing a bunch of workshops around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it for now. Amazing. Thank you so much, Richard. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. It's Angel Rena here. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Homecoming. I know that it was a long one this week, but hopefully you enjoyed the content. It definitely allowed me to get some questions and thoughts off of my chest. And I hope that it also got you thinking about some issues too. And feel free to reach out to me or to Richard through his website or his social media if you have any questions or um, comments about the topics that we discussed in this episode today. But remember to subscribe to Homecoming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen. And also make sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts if you are able. Lastly, I wanted to lift up something. As you all probably know, there was recently a huge explosion in Beirut, Lebanon that has killed over 130 people as of Wednesday, August 5th, and injured and displaced thousands more. I've put a list of organizations such as the Lebanese Red Cross that you can donate to and support to help those affected by the explosion in the homecoming link tree in the episode description and also on our social media platforms. So please, please, please keep those people in your hearts and you can definitely find more resources and information if you just do some searching on the internet. But thank you all so, so much for all of your support and for listening to Homecoming. I will see you next week with a brand new episode.